And so stories in and of themselves mm-hmm. are not evil, and neither are movies or novels or comic books. Maybe comic books. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to The Stage and Story Podcast, a show about story, culture, and imagination from a Christian perspective. I'm your host, Dane Bundy, president of Stage and Story and chaplain at Lifehouse Theater in Redlands, California. On today's episode, I begin a series of podcasts called This Trojan Horse, a journey I'm starting with my good friend and colleague, Pastor Brandon. Our plan is simple. We're going to watch movies and then talk about them, using a guide that I developed called Engaging the Trojan Horse, Watching Movies with a Christian Perspective. On this first episode, Brandon and I lay the foundations. We talk about some of the basic philosophical and theological questions that really help us when we try to approach a movie with a Christian perspective. I think you're going to find this episode very helpful, and I'd love to hear from you and what you think. Hi, Brandon. How are you? Hey, Dane. I'm doing great. (laughs) Well, we are in your office right now. I'm sorry, studio right now. <laughs> and uh, we do have a live audience. They don't know what we're doing, but we know what they're doing. They're kids outside playing ball. And uh, so if the, the live audience interferes, just know we planned it completely as we talk about movies. So maybe we should take people through like how this came about. Yeah. Well, I've always loved movies. So while a lot of families on a regular basis um, after school and after dinner would play games, I would watch movies with my family. So the question would always be, what are we going to watch tonight? And my mom is kind of a history slash movie expert, more movie expert, classic movie expert. And so I'd always come into the house and she would always would have TCM on and she could tell me about any actor or actress and how many wives that this actor has had and all their backstories. Uh, As long as the movie was in black and white, she could do that. So as I started teaching, I started thinking through stories at more of a kind of a philosophical and theological level. Mm. And noticing that stories really have a power that lecture or facts don't have. Right, right. They really draw you in. And, well, to put it this way, you're a pastor. The parts that I remember of sermons most of the time are the illustrations. Mm -hmm. And the wise pastor will weave the illustrations all throughout the sermon. And so I started realizing, boy, stories are powerful things. And this is a two-edged sword, right? Because if the story is something that's communicating something that is true or something that is good, then that's wonderful. But not all stories do that. As I've been teaching in the classroom for about a decade, I started noticing that my students started bringing in these foreign worldviews that they didn't get in Bible class and they didn't get at our school. And it wasn't that hard to conclude that most of these foreign ideas came from what they were watching on television or at the movies. Now, did you sense that they were aware that they were getting it from television movies? No, I don't think that they realized that. And that's what is pretty sinister about 
Right. Movies and so stories. They're, so they're walking around with these messages in their heads, and they're, they're not even necessarily pinpointing where they're coming from. They're just assuming, I came up with this is my view of the world. Yes. And they keep getting, the messages are uh, continuing to be reinforced over and over and over again. It's like mm. that, what is that saying? That if you say a lie enough times, you start believing it right, to be true. Right. And with most of these kids, I'm like, your parents don't believe this. We're not teaching this. You're mm-hmm. getting it from this source right here. And I'm not sure I'd like to say this all the time, but in a matter of speaking, it kind of brainwashes them. All of this has started to become a concern to me as I started watching my kids kind of become transformed by the stories that they were engaging with. And so I started thinking, how do I help them counteract this? Uh, now, you probably would agree, but I don't think the answer is boycotting or not seeing any movies or destroying you know, your Netflix on your, your tablet or avoiding stories at all. I think that's impossible. But I think the answer is to find a way to engage them with a Christian perspective. And we take what's good and we leave out what's not. So a friend encouraged me, why don't you write up a very simple step-by-step guide on how anyone can watch a movie from a Christian perspective? And so this little booklet that you were talking about, it's only about 30 pages, and I'm going to be making it available for free. And I tried to make it conversational in tone and real practical. And so today, I wanted to kind of start walking through this. So this, these dialogues can be kind of a companion to this booklet. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And one of the things that you say in it, which, I would, I, which relates to what you were just saying about should, what do we do with these movies? We boycott them. Uh, that may not be a good choice. Like, you know, wet paint don't touch. So what, did, what do you do? So they, in, they instead of... It. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, instead of boycotting, th- there's one part where you make this valuable distinction that movies are not evil. Mm. They're powerful. Mm. And so here you've put together a way that we can learn how to harness that power so that it doesn't harness us. Yes. And, you know, James talks about a, a very similar concept, this idea of the tongue mm-hmm. and how it really can bring about great destruction, but then it also can be used to turn around and worship God. It's like, oh my goodness. Hmm. The problem is not the tongue. The problem is something that is beneath it. Right. And so with stories, God is the author of the story. And so stories in and of themselves Mm -hmm. are not evil and neither are movies or novels or comic books, maybe comic books. No. (laughs) I <laughs> can tell you're not a fan. <laughs> but it has a lot to do with how you use them. And so as a lover of stories, someone who really loves movies and, and TV, I'm not saying that we should, um, A, avoid them or boycott them. I think it's all about how we approach them or engage them. Right. And so as you say in your booklet, which we'll get to right now, yeah. is uh, – it's his story that counts, the one that frames and corrects all others. So what you aim to do is take these stories that have great power, great potential, yes, and to put them alongside the story of God 
and see what uh, we can keep and what we can lose. And they have this great metaphor of the Trojan horse. So yes. let's let's yeah. talk about it. Well, and real quick, before we get to the Trojan horse, as I was walking into your office today, you have this great diagram of, you might say, the, the story of, or the drama of redemption or the biblical story right, of redemption. Yeah, yeah. And you break it down into some to some neat ways. Could you speak to that real quick? Because that might help us as we start talking about movies sure. and how to understand them. Yeah. So um, many talk about the U shape of mm-hmm. the gospel, mm-hmm. and I I basically took <laughs> how literature uses the pyramid. Yes. And so it took more of a V shape, took the pyramid and inverted it. Because the, the interesting thing about the gospel story, about God's story, is where most of the literature reaches rising action has a climax. It's the mm. high part of the story. Mm. The Bible has that happening at the lowest part of human history. Mm. So we start with creation mm. at this great point, mm. at the highest point of the story. It devolves. It goes down the slope of the V in decreation. That's part two. Creation, part two, decreation. Mm. And at the very um, center of humans, humanity's decreating act is when they kill the creator. Mm. It doesn't get further than decreating no. than killing the creator. So Jesus on the cross becomes part three. And that's the very bottom part of the V, the lowest point of history. But it's also your stereotypical climax, because that's where the whole story pivots. Mm. And Jesus comes out of the tomb alive. So the whole attempt by humans to decreate life actually takes on a new form of life. So we talk about recreation. And Jesus is now out of the tomb, leading others out of their tombs. Uh, Metaphorically, we're coming alive spiritually, and we're on this recreation campaign, sowing the seeds of love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, and I've skipped a few. Um, And then eventually it's going to finalize with part five, uh, new creation, Mm. where we'll finally be back to what creation was meant to be. So that's the top of the V. I really like that. And and sometimes when I, I've explained a similar concept like that, where I'll have creation on the left and then new creation on the right, and then I like to draw a tree in creation and then another tree in new creation. Just to highlight how the tree of life is in Genesis and Revelation. Exactly. And it's like we're going from one garden, we're, lo- we're kicked out of the garden, mm. we rebel, we lose the garden. And then the rest of the story, human history, is God returning his people to the garden. And so the reason why I asked you to expound on that, not only because your illustration is really cool and I wish I could draw like you can, but... (laughs) (laughs) He's much better at (laughs) that. But it's helpful for people to understand God's story. Because like you said earlier, this is going to be the story that frames all other stories. So all the movies that we see will, in a matter of speaking, be framed by God's story. So we might call this Mm. like the meta narrative or the meta story. And all the stories that we see in the movies today, they can be found in the big story, in God's big story. That's helpful going in before we talk about particular stories to begin with God's big story. And so in a way, it seems that all stories we come up with um, have their origin in the story. Yes. They're just, they're tweaked according to our beliefs or our experiences 
or they align with the story. But in a sense, the concept of story is birth because God is the great, as you say, the great dramatist. Exactly. So we are little dramatists. Yes, right. Imitating. Mm. Why we're image bearers. And one aspect of being an image bearer is that we are creators. And so we love telling stories. We've been telling stories for thousands of years. And when we do that, we're imitating the great storyteller. So it makes sense to begin with his story. While I was writing this little booklet, this idea, this kind of this metaphor came to me of the concept of the Trojan horse. And um, our, our listeners may be familiar with that myth uh, in, during the Trojan War when um, the Greeks were fighting the Trojans and this great, magnificent horse lands on the shore of, of Troy. And I watched, a, I watched a version, I watched a couple of versions of this particular scene when the Trojan horse um, arrives. Both of them weren't that great, but it was still pretty neat <laughs> to, see, to see the different interpretations of this horse. But what was, what was interesting about both of, I think one was a movie and one was a television show, they both showed that the Trojans were just enamored by this horse. Mm. And in one version, uh, the Greek was all battered. He has cuts all over his faces and he was tied to a wooden post. And the point was that I guess the Greeks had left him there and he is saying, please help me and please take this horse. It's going to be a sacrifice to the gods and it's going to help you win the war. The Greeks, they abandoned me. So I'm on your side now, basically. And just to clarify, the city of Troy is not the Greeks. The, the Greeks, the Greeks are, if you're from Troy's perspective, they're mm-hmm. the enemy trying to take your city. Yes, okay. that's exactly right. So what we see in the, in in this these scenes is that the the leadership comes out, right? The Trojan leadership, and now they have to decide what are we going to do with this magnificent wooden horse. Boy, we'd love to. Boy, we'd love to bring it in. in. In one version, there's actually food inside, and the Greek says, "Yeah, poke a hole in the belly, and and rice or a food came out, oh. and they needed that, and so that was another reason for them to bring the horse within the gates." Okay. So, all the different adaptations end in this, in them bringing the horse inside. Right. right. And and what I love about this story is that. The Trojans are are singing and dancing and celebrating that they are they've brought this mm. horse inside their gates and it's like this haunting you know you see the gates open here comes the horse and then there goes the gates closing and they're dancing and celebrating and there's this you know irony that the audience knows something's about to happen and so of course the night comes that's when usually the bad things happen at night. And uh, slowly, part of the the horse opens up. So the warriors, these Greek warriors, descend from the belly of this horse. And they look around. No one's there, right? So all the the excited, drunken Trojans now are in bed. Yeah, because the enemies have been defeated. Yeah. What do they have to do now? Right. So supposedly they've already gained the favor of the god, whether it's Athena or... One of the other gods. I can't remember. There's differing differing interpretations of which god they're trying to please. But 
they feel good. And so they are sleeping, dreaming of better times. Meanwhile, these elite warriors are walking to the gates. They open up the gates, and here comes the Greek army. That's the end, basically, of the war. The city is sacked, and I'm sure... Many of them are thinking we shouldn't have let the horse in. <laughs> to <laughs> say the least, is twenty twenty. Yes. So this hit me that stories are Trojan horses, right? Stories bring us in through emotions, intrigue, suspense, delight, romance—all the greatest emotions that we feel as human beings—and they draw us in. It's not like an essay that says, I'm bringing you in so you can analyze the propositions or the arguments I'm going to give you. An essay kind of warns you about that. A story doesn't. A story says, hey, see this experience through my eyes. And so what ends up happening is if a story is a Trojan horse, we often just bring that horse right into our gates and we close it. We close the gates. We enjoy it. And then that night we go to sleep and then we wake up and lo and behold, that message or that perspective on the world that is embedded within that story now takes root in our hearts, in our minds. Right. And the metaphor is so powerful because we often, we're like Troy when we watch these films. We're going into it and we're not necessarily guarded. Right. That's the last thing we want to do when we watch a film. Right. I'm tired. I, I've been on guard all day at mm-hmm. job, at school, at everything I'm doing. I want to just like let the guard down and like like the Trojans celebrate. Yes, and rest. Yes, because movies are great. They're fun. One last point that I'd like to make that I kind of alluded to is that every filmmaker or every storyteller brings a perspective on the world, and you can't help it. Right, Because we all have these experiences and we all have these beliefs. And a number of times these beliefs are what we call presuppositions. They're beliefs that we hold without having thought about them before or having arrived at them through you know, um, out loud verbal processing. So every filmmaker, every storyteller comes to his or her story with this worldview and naturally embeds it within the story. And it's almost like you can think of a painter, right? So a painter is giving us their view of the world, this view of an object. So no painter is going to paint a setting and this setting is going to look exactly like that landscape. Um, Otherwise, it wouldn't be painting, right? Within painting is this editing selection process because the painter could have moved, um, you know, five feet to his right and painted that landscape. Or he could have turned 30 degrees and painted that part. It's art is about editing and selecting according to your view of the world. Mm Mm-hmm. So while we talk about the Christian story, mm-hmm. um, we're not the only ones that have a story to make sense of the world. Yes. Everybody has one. Yes. And another way to talk about maybe this story is what we call a worldview. And we throw that, that idea around a lot. 
but a worldview provides answers to some really basic questions. So questions like what is really prime or what is really real, (laughs) right? As a Christian, I would say God is the most real of all that is. But other people look at the world and would say that what is really real actually is just the material world. There is no such thing as the spiritual world. And so that's going to influence the story that you have, that you look through. If there is no spiritual and all that is here is the material, then that is ultimately going to affect this next question, such as what is a human being? So the Christian is going to answer very differently from maybe the materialist. Mm-hmm. And I, I've heard someone um, really reduce the multiplicity of views in the mm. world into starting with that first one, what is reality, yes. into basically two camps. Mm. You have those that say there is the material world. This is what there is. And then there's those that say, that, yeah, there is plus. Yes. There's something beyond that. Yes. And so everybody at least initially falls into one of these two places. And then from there, we can, the river can break off into several streams, right? Yeah. And that's a great, that's a great way to put it is it really does become that simple. And, and so obviously the Christian perspective, the spiritual is a very important aspect of that, but that's not to discount the reality of the physical world. Mm. And that, I would say that's where, yeah. Some Christians maybe fall in a worldview where it's all spiritual and the physical yes. doesn't really matter. And yes. therefore, why do we even, why should we care about movies? Because yes. delighting ourselves is very material and is not really um, spiritual in any way. Yeah. And that, I'm glad you brought that up because the Christian story actually gives a defense of movies. We could even say of all art. Mm. And so we look at just the incarnation where God is immaterial in his essence But God took on flesh in what we call the incarnation. And what it kind of does for us as human beings is it it affirms creation. It doesn't say that creation is um, perfect and not fallen, but it affirms that um, if God can take it on, then as human beings, we can engage with it as well. Right. So the incarnation, or another way to say it, is the embodiment of yes. God in Jesus. Yes. It wasn't the decarnation, the disembodiment. It wasn't him saying, all right, people, to meet me, I got to move you over here. Yes. He came to us. Yes. Like you said, really affirmed. And then extra affirmed it by coming out of the grave, mm-hmm. not as a ghost, mm-hmm. but as something that could eat, yes. that could drink, that could be touched, yes. that could be seen, that could talk. Yes. <laughs> it seemed to be every sense of human body just improved. Yes, exactly. And, and that's exciting for me because I know that our eternal state with, with God will not be a disembodied state. We will so in a way, in movies, sometimes when we delight in what we see and it, it, it expands our imagination, we're actually getting glimpses of what a restored human experience can look like mm. at times. Yes. And, and that's, I think that's why we're excited because we know that we are made to be humans and we, that was not a mistake. Mm-mm. And I like what you said, a restored human experience, because what I think movies do is they not only communicate a perspective on the world, but part of that perspective is human beings' desires 
for that future world. Mm. So you can't have a great story without a conflict. And you can't have a conflict without the reality of the fall. And so I think that I think it was you who passed on that book to me. I never read it, but I just love the title. I haven't either. Okay. <laughs> I love the title too. That's my approach to scholarship is just read the title. <laughs> but what is it? Um, movies as prayers. Movies as prayers. I love that because movies um, often reveal what the filmmaker sees as is the problem mm-hmm. in the world right now. One of the problems. And and that problem ultimately does come from the reality that right. human beings are fallen and separated from God. So I like to think, and we'll talk about this in, um, I think, the next podcast, but, but movies do point us, um, even if they're showing us this great vacancy or vacuum of good, they still point us to God because God is ultimately what our hearts are looking for and what our hearts ultimately want to rest in. Yeah. And so one of the ways I I like to look at it is all movie makers have a vision of what they think the Mm. restored human experience is. Um, But if we put God like way at the top of the ultimate human experience, we just have a variety of levels of where we're landing. Some are, some are nailing as high, they're reaching as high as God, but many others are, settling somewhere beneath that, somewhere in the created realm, right? They're, they're settling for maybe the American dream is what will solve the human problem. Well, the American dream is significantly lower on the scale than the ultimate being of God. And so their, you know, their story just doesn't reach, in my mind, high enough. Yes. And, and it goes back to that book that you shared with me. Once again, I just read the title. But was it J.K. <laughs> <laughs> J.K. A. Smith's, Smith's work where he talks about the good life yes, and how, well, correct me because I'm just going to butcher it because I'm only going off the title, but I, and one quote <laughs> that you, you gave read me. the title three times. Right? I, yeah, and that quote that you gave me. <laughs> <laughs> but if I might take his idea without fully understanding it, filmmakers are in answer to their problem, right? So a lot of stories will have, um, this big conflict, and then there will be some sort of resolution. And if it has a happy ending, and in some respects, that's the filmmaker's attempt to fix the problem. And in, in many ways, that's the casting of this is what the good life is. I'm, I'm giving you just a glimpse of what the good life is. And I like that because in the Christian story, the ultimate story that God has written and he's directing and he stars in, he has given us this vision of what mm-hmm. the good life is. And like you said, the American dream is not a bad thing, but oh, it pales in comparison to the vision that God mm-hmm. has casted when we're reunited with him for all eternity. Right. The American dream makes a good setting but it makes a poor new creation destination. I like that. Hey friends, thank you so much for listening to the Stage and Story podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, make sure to subscribe to our podcast. And that'd be great if you could give us a rating and share this episode with a friend. If you want to find out more about Stage and Story, please check out our website at stageandstory.org. You can also subscribe and be notified of upcoming events and free resources to help you think about culture with a Christian perspective.
Until next time, this is Dane Bundy wishing you a wonderful week in Christ.